Abstract Athlete Podcast, a collision of art, sports, and science. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Abstract Athlete Podcast. Big thank yous to our amazing listeners and our sponsors for their incredible support. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please send it to info at theabstractathlete.com. Remember to check out our other podcasts on the Abstract Athlete Network, the Abstract Doctors with Dr. G and Dr. C. You can follow us on social media under the Abstract Doctors or check us out at theabstractdoctors.com. Also, One Man's Ethos, the Tony Mandrich podcast. Follow us at onemansethos.com or check us, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at One Man Ethos. You can also follow Tony on Instagram at Tony Mandridge, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Tony underscore Mandridge, and also check out his amazing photographs at TonyMandridge.com. Stop by our website, theabstractathlete.com, for information on subscription boxes and on upcoming events and workshops. Make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Really, really excited to welcome PhD and professor of psychology and human molecular genetics, Danielle Dick. Going to talk about her inspiring work and her studies. We're also going to talk about her thoughts on how creativity is beneficial and how we should all be doing creative things. Make sure to check her, check her out at psychology.vcu.edu. Let's welcome Danielle Dick. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm awesome. Oh, you've got a cool big microphone thing. Well, you know, we're serious here. We do not mess around with this whole recording. No. Wow. This is, actually, I'm this, impressed. This is... I'm trying to, no, this is not one of my old vocal mics. I don't know where I got this one. You know, you knew, you do know I sing, right? Hasn't Casey. I, oh, okay. I've seen the videos. Okay. Come on. Okay. I just, I'm making sure. Oh yeah. Though I, no, I'm talking about really sing, like not that stuff. So. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this, the, the song you made for Nora. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh yeah. God, I forgot about that. Jeez. Jeez. I forgot about that. I mean, I assume there were other things. There, too, but... Yes. Yes. Less serious than that. Of course, obviously that's the important stuff. Well, thank oh, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, I know we've been kind of randomly talking about this for a little while. So I it's... know I'm sorry. My schedule has been crazy and it took forever to get it nailed down. No, so. I, Hey, I, I think we're all, uh, you know, in a, in a crazy space in terms of, a trying to like exist in this world at the moment um and like re-navigating or navigating whatever this is and and trying to figure out how to navigate it so i you know it's all it's all it's all cool i'm just glad glad that we get to do this because i do think i'm going to do these weird introductions of how, <laughs> how what 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 you do in the world but i think that there's overlap in a lot of ways um maybe in dealing with the mental health aspect and what you deal with and how we deal with it. But like, like to try to like, you have lots of titles, you know, which I think is like really cool. But like, so you're, you're a PhD in psychology and your focus is on really is on addiction. Correct. I, I don't want to like, you can like step in and say, but like you, you work with human and molecular genetics, but with a I specialization in, in addiction. Is that and how genetics and like environmental um, circumstances like all come together, right? Yeah. And so I do think that there's overlap in like kind of what we do, and I'm I'm interested to hear some of the the things that I think may overlap even more than like what I think we think about but you know again like I always say this to when I start out the podcast with people is like this is a platform for you to, to talk about you <laughs> because I do th you know like you're you're you do some like incredible work and it's it's you know we've known each other for a while but it's fun to like go and and research and and to see 
really what you've done um, in terms of like the awards you've won in terms of, do you still write? I know you were writing homework. I do. I do homework. <laughs> I know I have to actually act like I'm smart every once in a while. Um, wow. You, you probably know no, more about me now than, the, you know, you have after all well, of our dinner parties po- together. Possibly, possibly. But, but I mean, I, I, you know, it's like you did, you were writing, I don't know if you still do this. You were writing for psychology now. Is it called psychology now? Or psychology today. Today. today yeah. That's what it was. Um, and you were doing like a monthly, or was it, was it monthly? Am I right in that? Uh, I, well, I don't know where you're going with you're, monthly. I thought you were like writing an article monthly for them at one point in time or some, or bi-monthly or something. Uh, yeah, I'm popping up <laughs> doing all kinds of different things. So, yeah. Well, uh, so, you know, I'll start at the beginning, which is why that you talked about all my different titles. Casey makes fun of me, my husband, for those of you who don't know him. Ron obviously does well. Yes. Um, Casey makes fun of me for how long my signature line is. I, in fact, just shortened it recently to take out oh, all the extended. I'm, I'm adding stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the reason is because I'm trained across multiple areas. So that gets at what you were speaking to before. So my PhD was in psychology, but I specialized in behavior genetics. So in other words, the extent to which um, our genetic predispositions come together with environments to influence the things that make us who we are. And then I did a postdoc in um, medical and molecular genetics. So I did more intensive training in genetics. And I, so my research really brings all of this together. And so hence I've been in departments of psychiatry and genetics in African-American studies and psychology. So really because I work across so many different areas, it kind of touches on all kinds of things. A lot of my work is on substance use and mental health outcomes, but I also, you know, based on my training, I'm in a developmental psychology program So I also study kids, for example, and, you know, how genes and environments shape child behavior and what that looks like as kids grow up and how that can, you know, contribute to problems in some cases, but also how as parents we can, um, you know, intervene and change the environment to help positively shape outcomes. So I do everything from big gene identification projects where we're trying to find genes involved in, for example, why some people are more at risk for developing alcohol problems or other drug problems or depression or why some people are more impulsive um, and anything like that. So I work on these big gene identification uh, projects. And then I also do a bunch of studies of kids across time to look at what kids who carry different genetic dispositions look like as they're growing up and how different environments can shape those outcomes, shape their outcomes, kind of interact with our genes. And then I use all of that to develop more tailored prevention and intervention. So how can people understanding more about their natural genetic makeup, what their strengths are, what they're at risk for, how can that help us all to make the best decisions for our life outcomes? So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. And then, of course, I direct this research institute that you know about and whatnot, too. <laughs> right. But I just, you know, it's to me, it's, I mean, it's that's so far above my head, but it's still fascinating to me because I do think I mean, do you do you even deal in terms of of diet in, in regards to how how that affects us as, you know, like in our, in our makeup as well? Yeah. So absolutely. That, that's not something that I have expertise in, right? I don't specifically study diet, but we know that that is one of the environments that interact with our genetic makeup, right? right? So diet's a great example because um, in genetics, we talk about weight being one of the last accepted prejudices, meaning there's strong evidence that um, our genetics influences kind of our weight set point, right? Right. So I could eat a ton of stuff, but I have a really fast metabolism and I'm probably not ever gonna be morbidly obese, right? Whereas somebody else could have a different genetic makeup and eat much healthier than I am, and they're still gonna have a bigger BMI, right? right? So 
it's, you know, uh, half, weight is half the luck of the draw in terms of the genes we inherited. And then it's half about diet and exercise and all those kind of things, right? Um, I mean, if weight were easily modified by diet, say, uh, or just exercise, then dieting wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh, right? 100%. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a kind of an easy example of how you can think about it's always both, right? right. Um, certainly it's environments, which include diet and exercise and you know, the other kind of things you guys do as athletes. Like one of the things I'm, I've always been in, you know, like I've read multiple, you know, articles and stuff in terms of mental wellness and, and kind of how that feeds into weight gain, you know, for instance, or, or different physical, uh, issues that happen with us, you know, like, and, and how that maybe goes into addiction issues, um, whether it's eating too much, whether it's drinking too much or doing, you know, like massive amounts of drugs or what, whatever the situation. But also like, I'm curious, and this is maybe a three-part question at this point, but like how, how you've noticed in, in particular what we're going through right now with, with COVID in terms of addiction issues. Uh, and I don't know if that would be environmental at this point because we're all dealing with it. But, you know, like I obviously like I think you could associate addiction issues with different places that people uh, like live and um, whether yeah. it's countries or, or cities or whatever. But like how how has that like changed or have you even you know, maybe you're not maybe you're in the midst of something study wise of how like addiction issues have whether they've gone up or down during this time. I'm assuming they've gone up. Um, cause I know that people are struggling yeah. with their mental health issues in, in regards to all the, the COVID stuff. Absolutely. So the way we think about it, and certainly what the research suggests is that it is almost impossible to tease apart our genes and our environments. Right. right. And so by that, I mean, we are not all blank slates. You and I could experience the exact same thing, whether it's an interaction with another person or something that happens to us. And it could affect us in totally different ways based on our unique personalities and lived experiences. And so if you think about how you know, our, our genetic predispositions, the fact that they're, we're all unique, our brains are wired differently from day one. And then you think about how that unfolds as you move through life, right? And so let's just take, um, for example, a more impulsive person. In a toddler that shows up as the little kid who's, you know, like climbing to the top of trees and parents are constantly trying to make sure he's not running into the street and falling out. And, you know, I have that child. I have that <laughs> child. Now you advance to a teenager and we know that those are the kids who are also more likely to be experimenting with alcohol and with drugs and to be pushing the edge of the envelope. Now, most teenagers do that to some extent, right? So part of that is normal, environmental, developmental, but based on kids' natural dispositions, some of them are more risk-taking, right, than others. If you think about, so that's one example, but think about something also like depression. You know, we talked about mental health. Um, so we're all disposed, you know, some of us, we're all at risk for something, but right. we're at risk for different things, right? Some people are more at risk for cancers. Other people are more at risk for mental health challenges. And so if you're someone who's more predisposed to depression, then, you know, if, if, if you or I lost a loved one um, or lost our job, then that's going to be stressful for us regardless, right? So we all experience life stressors, and those are things that can, you know, impact our mood, impact our happiness, that sort of thing. But for some people, it's much harder to bounce back from that than others, right? And so that's what I mean by it's part predisposition, and then it's part the environments that you encounter. So it's hard to say it's one or the other because of course it's the environment, right? Somebody could have a predisposition toward depression, but with lots of support systems and you know, things in place, it doesn't mean that they're you know, destined to become depressed and never get out of bed, right? But right. it does mean 
that they're more likely to have challenges when they encounter life challenges, right? And so, so now we take that to alcohol and addiction and the pandemic and mental health. So the pandemic is an environmental stressor that we are all experiencing. And so that's having an impact on everybody, but it's having a different impact on different people. And that's not you know, just about, do you have little kids at home that you are having to deal with versus do you, you know, have a job that you don't have anymore? I mean, people are experiencing stressors in different ways, but in addition, the way we respond to those stressors varies a lot as a function of who we are. And so people who were already, you know, more disposed toward having challenges with mental health, toward having challenges with addiction, now you layer on that stressor of the pandemic. And those are the folks that are most at risk, essentially. So it's, you know, can you have an environmental stressor that is so strong, it could take somebody who's not even genetically at risk and, and potentially create problems? Probably, right? I could imagine where if, you know, I was someone who had lost my job, lost my home, you know, didn't know how I was gonna feed my children or where we were gonna sleep from one week to the next, that that would be extremely hard on anyone, you know, and that's enough to make anyone feel despondent. But, you know, there's a lot of middle area where how people respond to, the, to you know, these stressors that we're experiencing is of course influenced by our genetic predispositions. Uh, yeah, it's again, like, it, it's just crazy to think about like all these little intricacies about what we're going through in, in terms of where different people are at. If, and that's a weird way to say it. Yeah. But you know, it, it's I don't know. I, I The one thing like, and I think you and I have kind of talked about this before. I'm trying to remember, like, it might have been like the first time we actually Matt, because, you know, obviously we like to talk about creativity and exercise and, you know, but I guess one of the questions I, you know, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this is like, is there, obviously we know that exercise is good for you. I mean, not just, not just for your physical, for everybody, not just for your physical health, but it's like, it's shown that it's actually good for your mental health as well obviously creativity like we don't need studies necessarily to like say that creativity and exercise are both but it is is there like data that actually physically shows that these two things actually change the chemistry of the mind like like the literal chemistry of how the brain operates you know maybe it's like the endorphins or i, I, I see i'm going i don't even know what i'm talking about but i'm making shit up well, now but you know what i mean like is there is there actual <laughs> data that actually physically shows that these things not just do what they're but they they, they change the chemical makeup of how we operate Absolutely. And exercise is a great example. It is good for everyone, but it's also, um, it, it's a great environment to help reduce depression. You know, it, I mean, it does, there's compelling evidence that it produces physiological changes that are positive for individuals. You know, part of the challenge is that people who have severe depression have trouble motivating, right? So that first step of getting back in a routine and becoming active and doing exercise is often the most challenging, but there is 100% evidence that when they do, that it is hugely beneficial. Um, so, so, you know, it's, I'm interested in your perspective as an artist too, right? Because creativity is not something that there is a ton of research on in my field. Um, and, and so as an artist, there is actually, by the way, a lot of research on sports performance that you probably know with respect yeah. to genetics and environment. And, and the bottom line is it looks like, like everything else, it's both, right? People, some people have more natural ability than others, but you can also cultivate ability through the environment. Okay, right, not rocket science. <laughs> but I'm interested in, um, in your perspective as an artist too, with respect to 
I would imagine that that's also something that some people have more natural ability, but then you can also further cultivate that. Or do you think that when it comes to artistic ability, is it really a blank slate and you could like you could shape me into a great artist? Oh yeah. No, I th- I mean, I, I absolutely think, I think we are, and I say this a lot. I think everybody is creative. And, and, and I, and I don't mean that that means you have to be a painter. Creativity is like such a broad spectrum. Like maybe you want to write. Oh, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. And, and I do think like, you know, we, we talk a lot about the connections between art and athletics, obviously the abstract athlete, you know, we're, we're talking about exercising the body, exercising the mind. And I do think like, we don't think about art or we don't talk about art all the time as a practice and it is. And the more you do something in anything, the better you get. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that if you're, you know, you go play basketball at, at the playground every week, well, that doesn't mean you're a professional basketball player, but it means you love it. And it means like you like doing it and you probably, you, you know, you have better weeks and, and off weeks, it, you know, like anything else. Yes. As an artist, I think absolutely I can teach you tricks, habits. I mean, I like I think that's one of the things that I always tell people and this goes back to the addiction thing to me, which I think is really interesting. I'm kind of I'm not an addictive personality, but I'm a ritual-based person, which I don't know that there's a lot of difference in that in some ways, but I have to I have to work out every day. Or, you know, if I don't, I feel kind of weird and I have to be in my studio every day. Now, again, that that doesn't mean I have to go run 10 miles every day. You know, I can do my interval training one day and and change it up the next day. And it doesn't mean I have to be in my studio for two hours a day. It means maybe I have to be down there 20 minutes. But that ritual to me of getting in that space really works for me. And, And again, I don't, ritual and addiction are like, I know that's like linguistics in some ways, but there's something really strange to me because I, you know, like I can stop doing something at any point in time. So I don't have that personality that, you know, if I get into something, I'm like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Yeah. But I am very ritual based. And I, and so like there is an addiction to me in some ways that I like when I go drive out West, like, you know, I do all the time. Like I don't obviously don't physically work out during that time. And I do get like a little fidgety and I don't go to my studio, although like maybe I'll in my head, write music or, 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 you know, think about ideas for paintings and stuff. So there is that little, little thread to me, but it's like, my addiction is to things that are good, I guess, you know? Yeah. And you know, I mean, so when we talk about like alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, the compulsion part is part of it, right? Uh, but another big part of it is, is it causing problems in your life? You know, a lot of us can be like, habits can be good for several things, yeah. right? Like our brains, when they get into a routine, they like staying in that routine. Um, and now that can be, so that in and of itself is a normal human behavior and attribute and way brains work. The problem is in addiction that works against you, right? right? Because what you do is you fall into this habit that is now creating problems in your life, but you also can't break it, right? And so, and part of that is because you have created a routine and, you know, and then there's all of these, our brains are also really good at making connections. Otherwise we'd have to be relearning the world every time we stepped out the front door, right? But what that means is when you have substance use problems is when you drive by the bar that you used to go to, your brain immediately goes, ooh, I remember this really rewarding thing that used to happen there, right? Like substances, alcohol, that great feeling. So even though you might consciously know oh, wait, no, that has sent me down a path that has led to, you know, my losing friends and my having trouble at work and other interferences, you know, our brains really like rewards. And the problem is substances produce immediate rewards. Whereas 
a lot of the other things in life that are the more important things, right? Meaningful relationships and friendships and a rewarding career. Well, that doesn't happen in this one very moment, right? Like, and they're more unpredictable. I mean, you know, I love my husband, but he's not like, it's not like every moment with him, I can be guaranteed. <laughs> what? what? going to be fabulous, right? <laughs> And, uh, but with a substance, you know what reaction that's going to produce, right? right? And um, whether that's more euphoria or um, stress reduction. And so those are the reasons that addiction can be, you know, um, so challenging to a, a cycle to break out of. Right. But I, there's like, I, I find it interesting too. And, and again, I don't know, there's nothing that I remember ever reading about, but you know, that, that the literal high you can get from alcohol and, and drugs compared to the the endorphin high you can get from running like the the runner's high they call it yes. or in in art you know what they call the flow where you just kind of disappear and those those experiences to me are actually more euphoric um like i i you know i i talk to people you know of all the kind of creative things i've done being a singer and being on stage there's just nothing like it. And yeah. like that weird sensation, you know, like, you know, I've told stories before, like we opened up for the misfits in a show and there's like 10,000 people like being on stage and just seeing a sea of people and just disappearing for that 45 minute set. And it's just, I can't recreate that. Like there's no drug or alcohol that for me that would ever do that. Yes. Now running, like I get, you know, I get that, that runner's high or whatever, or that workout high and being in the studio, like I do, I get like that excitement and that, you know, but it is different, but is, I mean, is it something, do you guys, do you use like the, the exercise component or the creative component in your work at all? Like with, with patients or, you know, to try to get them, I don't want to say to understand that these things are, you know, good, whatever you want to say, like yeah, or more beneficial. No, absolutely. No, you're 100% right. I don't do a lot of direct interaction with patients because right. I'm in the lab doing research all the time, but I, I work with lots of people who do the treatment side of things. And absolutely, one of the things you're trying to do is you, you can't just subtract something out of someone's life, right. right? You have to put something else in there to fill that. And so if you look at, and that's why you know, we talk about um, addiction treatments being more holistic now, right? That recovery is a whole process. It's not just stop using the drug. It's you need other positive, rewarding things in your life. And so it's helping the individual figure out what that is. And so you do see people who, and because some people who fall into patterns of addiction are people who are compulsive and, and or impulsive. That's why you sometimes see people channel that into other outlets and become uber competitive athletes, right? <laughs> right. Or take on some other risk seeking, sensation seeking outlet, right? Like rock climbing or something like that, where there are other ways of getting a high. And part of that can be exactly the kind of things you talk about. And part of it is also recognizing, okay, how do we start to build up some of these other support systems like a peer network, you know, um, family relationships, a lot of the things that sometimes either are damaged by substance use or were problematic and that contributed to the individuals starting to use substances. Um, and that's part of the reason that peer um, uh, recovery, right? Peer supports and recovery has been such a big thing. In addition, giving back to the community. The idea that another thing that we haven't talked about, but another thing that's been shown to be very rewarding is giving to others, right? That produces positive feelings. And yep. so those are, that's why all these things are components of successful treatment. And you see a lot of folks who are persons in recovery, who are super active in their community and passionate about giving back, whether that's supporting other people trying to come through recovery, or whether that's, you know, giving back in a, in a whole series of other ways that you can volunteer and try and help other people's lives be better. So there's all kinds of ways. And what you talked about, I loved how you talked earlier about how creativity um, can be very different for different people. And it reminds me also of um, 
a friend of mine whose research is all in mindfulness talks about some people will be like, oh, well, I tried that and it didn't work for me, right? Or I don't like meditation or, and, and the whole idea is learning to stop and reflect and be more present in the world is uh, something that all of us can benefit from, but what that looks like can be very different for different people, right? Absolutely. I personally cannot sit and meditate. I like go stir crazy. It is not beneficial to my mental health. I am sure if I kept at it and practiced and all that stuff, I could get better. But for me, I find, um, you know, I well, back in the days when I went into work, I walk to and from work every day. And that 15 minutes yep. where I don't look at my phone, I don't chat, I don't try and do email, I don't try and multitask. It was, it's just a quiet, like- It's therapeutic. Neighborhood, yep. yes, look at nature, yep. you know, be alone with my and thoughts. That- for me, that works. That That is so much about like what I say about being a creative person is paying attention. And yeah. and I say that to my students all the time. And and like, again, like that's literally one of the things why I drive out West. And, and I hate the word, I don't like the word therapy. Like I, I think art therapy to me is like such a, I just hate that phrase because I think art is just inherently therapeutic. It's just, yeah. and what we're trying to do with the abstract athlete is like, it's not therapy we're trying we're trying to get you to be proactive in your approach so then you know when things start going wrong oh well i can just sit down and doodle for 20 minutes and that actually takes me down a notch and so like yeah. we we actually i've been working with multiple doctors as you know you got us in touch with the great dr david Seafew, but i also been working with um dr uh win and dr gartenhaus who are at massey and one of the phrases Dr. Wynn came up with, which I love, and we've been starting to use it, is prehab, is the idea oh, of, and it's a great, that. it's a great phrase. And it, it's something that I've always said, because it's proactive approach, but he put it in this like really nice <laughs> phrase that is like prehab. Yeah, if you're doing this beforehand, then you actually know that this actually works. And you have this in your routine then it's not, it's not a therapy or, you know, you're not trying to catch up to it, you know? Yes. And so I think it's, it, all those things are just like really, I just think, I just think that they're really interesting if we start approaching these things ahead of time as, op- as opposed to trying to respond to them. So I a hundred percent agree, especially being somebody who does prevention work, Right. right? Part of the reason that I ended up going into this field is um, I I was working on a psychiatric unit uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, just because I was interested. I took an abnormal psychology class and became really fascinated by the brain. And so I did this internship. And one of the things that I found really frustrating was the revolving door aspect of, you know, of people who have developed problems and then they'd get better and they'd come back and they'd come back. And it made me think like, well, what if we could get in before the problems develop, right? Like let's trace it back to what's causing the problems. So that's what led me into, you know, genetics and trying to understand what are the pathways of risk, right? What leads people to develop problems or conversely, what reduces the likelihood that individuals will develop problems. And so, you know, that's all in the prevention space. And the thing that is frustrating to me, so Ron, you need to help me with this one and we can go out and make more (laughs) disciples of other people is that it's extremely difficult to get prevention efforts funded because when they work, you don't see the problem, right? People like addressing problems. When there is a problem, every politician wants to get behind fixing it, right? But if it's not a problem, if you know, then it's like, why are we spending all this money doing these programs? And it's like, no, no, the programs are working if they are preventing these otherwise really costly problems. But that is such a hard sell because it doesn't have the emotional tug of seeing an athlete who has, you know, hit rock bottom and now you're going to come in and do something to... You know, yeah, we don't want to talk about the foundation that they have that does all this no. good stuff. We want to talk about the DUI that this 
person just got or something because yeah. it's, it's sensationalism. We need like, I, I a hundred percent agree. It's crazy to me. Like, I, I don't know why we don't talk about the things that are actually beneficial and doing good things in the world, but we want to talk about the bad things. And it's like, yes. you're, you're a hundred percent right. It's like, no, actually the programs are working. <laughs> we need them funded. And then we won't have these problems. It's I know. Crazy. And, you know, I have to say, I feel like the whole mind uh, movement toward mindfulness and whatnot has helped a lot, right? Like a lot of people have gotten behind, you know, being positive and proactive. And, um, and so that's all really great. But I think when it comes to thinking about challenges like addiction or depression, or, you know, many of the things that I work on, people still think of it from a like, treatment based, you know, like, oh, like, this is a problem, what are we going to do about it? And there's less enthusiasm for prevention, um, which is, you know, obviously where I think we need to be focusing more right. efforts, because I don't want, I don't want a child to go on to develop problems with alcohol, and then for us to have successful ways to treat it. I mean, we need to have successful ways to treat it, but I'd rather we'll be stop able it from to happening. curb the likelihood that person's going to develop problems. Quick break. Make sure to check out Danielle at psychology.bcu.edu. Also, do not forget to listen to our other podcasts on the Abstract Athlete Network, The Abstract Doctors with Dr. G and Dr. C. Follow us at theabstractdoctors.com or on social media under The Abstract Doctors. And One Man's Ethos, the Tony Manders podcast, which you can follow on Instagram at One Man's Ethos or check us out at onemansethos.com. You can also check out Tony on Instagram at Tony Mandridge or on Twitter at Tony underscore Mandridge. You can also check out Tony's amazing photographs at TonyMandridge.com. Now back to Danielle. Like I, there was one thing I read about that you, it was a pot or a, a study, I guess, um, and I'm not sure when, when it, or maybe it's still going on, but I just read something. It was with the twins. The, I think it was the Finn twins. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. What, like, what explain what that was. Like, I mean, I mean, it, to me that like twins are always interesting just because of the, like speaking of genetics and how closely related they are, but how different is, is that what you were studying as like the differences in terms of like, I, I only like, again, I only read like a snippet and I didn't understand exactly what was going on, but were you like studying like the idea of like how these, these two people can be so obviously connected, but yet have completely different outcomes? Yeah. So the reason that we study twins, twins are a fascinating natural experiment, right? Because if you go back, you know, 60 plus years, we thought everything was environmental, right? right? Basically. I mean, so if you look at something like addiction, it's like, oh, moral issue, right? Like pick yourself up by your bootstraps or depression. You know, um, why is this person just lazing around? They need to get over it, right? They don't have a strong, um, you know, backbone. And I mean, anything that you can think of, it was always like thought to be environmental. And so twin studies are really a study design. I mean, twins are interesting in and of themselves, but from a research perspective, they're really interesting because they come in two types. So you have um, monozygotic or what we tend to call identical twins and identical twins result when you have a single egg fertilized by a single sperm. And then at some point during cell division, it splits into two. And so what you have are two genetically identical individuals. So, you know, Ron, I know you're of the same age as me. So you probably also remember like when Dolly the sheep was cloned oh, and yes. all over the news oh, yeah. and everyone was like, oh my God, there's going to be clones of people walking all around the world next. Well, there are clones walking all over. They're called identical twins, right? <laughs> And um, so, and they don't turn out to be identical people, right? They are far more similar than if than a pair of siblings or, you know, a pair of random people. So genes clearly, you know, play a big role in um, similarity, but they don't turn out identical. That's why researchers don't call them identical twins. We call them monozygotic, meaning one zygote. The other type of twin is dizygotic, 
or uh, fraternal twins. And so dizygotic just means that there's two eggs that are ovulated and they're fertilized by two sperm. So it's just like ordinary siblings, except that it happens at the same, same time. time. Yeah. So they're age matched and sharing an intrauterine environment. But from a genetics perspective, what they offer is a really interesting way to figure out how much is something genetically influenced and how much is it environmentally influenced. And so what we do is we go out and we study tens of thousands of twin pairs. So the Finn twin study is all of the twins that were born in the country of Finland over a 10 year period. So it's about 10,000 wow. individuals um, over each of the five. So we have two studies and each of them are all five years, everybody that was born there. So it's about 5,000 twin pairs in each, about 10,000 pairs of twins. And so, and then we go out and we measure any behavior we're interested in studying. You know, we could study creativity, we could study, you know, alcohol use, we could study nicotine patterns, we could study depression, and we could study, you know, impulsivity, anxiety, anything anybody's interested in. You measure them. And then what you're looking at is how similar are MZ twins or how similar are siblings that share all their genetic makeup to DZ twins or siblings that share half of their genetic makeup. And so you can imagine that if something was all environmental, right? So pretend that alcohol problems were purely caused by having parents who had alcohol problems, um, you know, that they provide um, perhaps stressful home environments, less monitoring of the kids, the kids might have more stress, um, you know, more um, experience with maltreatment or other kinds of you know, stressors. Then if that were the case, you would expect that MZ twins would be no more similar than DZ twins because both of those are you know, siblings being raised by the same parents. Right. So you'd expect no difference. On the other hand, if in fact, whatever you're studying is partly influenced by genes, let's say it's creativity, <laughs> then you would expect that if something is genetically influenced, MZ twins should be more alike than DZ twins because they share more of their genes. They, you're kind of holding the environment constant. You're holding like home environment when they're being raised by the same parents constant. And you're asking, does, do a pair of siblings who share more genes turn out more alike than a pair of siblings that only share half of their genetic makeup? And so this has been done with virtually every phenotype that you can <clears throat> think of. In fact, I should look up studies on creativity. Um, yes, you should. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that they must be out there. And what I can tell you, Ron, is that from for virtually every human behavior that's been studied, it shows a degree of genetic influence. MZ twins are almost always more alike than DZ twins. Right. So, you know, it's when you think about it, it's actually hard to think of something that is totally not influenced by our genetic makeup or the way our brains are wired, right? Um, like I can think of a couple examples, uh, which are the first language that you speak, right? Like I didn't start speaking English as opposed to Chinese because I like have a predisposition toward English speaking, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but now that said, how quickly you learn other languages is genetically influenced, right? But um, so, so that's why we study twins. Um, there's a whole series of other variations on twin studies. Like um, there is a big study out of Minnesota where they found identical twins, so MZ twins, that were separated at birth and raised um, separately by non-relatives. And then they tracked them down and reunited them and did a whole battery of tests in the lab. And the really fascinating thing that came out of that experiment, that series of experiments, is that these twins um, who had never met, had been raised, in, in many Crazy. cases had never met, had been raised by different sets of parents. And in some cases weren't even aware that the other one existed. When they brought them back together, they were extremely similar, as similar so as identical weird. twins so raised by the same parents. That's just so weird. That's just, I, I mean, that like, it's almost creepy. Like, oh, that's just, I don't even, how do you, uh, I don't know. 
I mean, it's cool. It's a cool, weird thing. It's so. I, so I would. I don't think of it as creepy. I think of it as powerful evidence yeah. of something that, at heart, we all know, which is we are all unique and we are all different. Yep. Right. Yeah. So. No, um, creep, I didn't mean uh, creepy like in a weird. Like it, it's just like. That's just that stuff that's like, oh, that's just so weird, but like so cool at the same time, you know? I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Like, to, it, it's just, I, it's kind of mind blowing to me. Okay, so if you haven't already, have you seen Three Identical Strangers? No, Three Identical All right, strangers. I recommend that to everyone out yeah. there. Um, the movie Three Identical Strangers, it's probably on Netflix or something now. And it is a true story. And it is about um, th uh, triplets. So identical triplets who were separated at birth, placed with different parents by, a, and part of this documentary is about the ethics of this too, because this adoption agency was intentionally separating twins and placing them with different parents and then studying them as they grew up and never told the other parents or oh, about cool. children. And it was essentially looking at how similar, you know, um, people turn out. So these three boys discover each other or when they go away to college and somebody keeps mistaking one of them for someone else. And that's how- I know you're doppelganger. <laughs> I know it was. So, and then they discovered there were actually far more twins that they had done oh, this to. So, that's so weird. but a lot of it is about then the boys grappling with how much of who, you know, how similar they were, but how their own different home experiences and parents had differentially shaped them. And right. so I won't give it away, but it's totally worth a watch. Okay. Three identical strangers. Okay. I'm going to watch that later. What I, th this is like off, like, we always like to ask these kind of more personal questions at, at the uh, end and stuff. And that's not, admit. but like who, like who or what inspires you? Like, I think maybe a who would be better. Um, I mean, and it can be any, I mean, it can be, you know, a, a doctor, it could be an athlete, it could be an actor, you know, but I mean, it could be Casey. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's a weird know question. Isn't that funny? It makes me think back to when you were a kid and you had to like write a paper about yeah. who. Was what did you do this summer? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yes. So I would say I am inspired by passionate people. I think this is why when you and I met, we really hit it off too. Because I'm it crazy. <laughs> no, but it I doesn't matter what you're passionate about. I am somebody who gets excited by ideas. Yep. And, and so, and, and that's contagious. One of the podcasts that Casey has turned me on to is the podcast, How I Built This. Oh yeah. And it's all about entrepreneurs and how they built things. And so one of the things that I love is, I love people who are passionate about all kinds of things. And, and I also though love the reality of being transparent about the ups and downs that exist behind pursuing your goals, right? So I know that I have the experience in academia of people will look at me and be like, wow, you're like a distinguished full professor and you're a young for your career. And so they imagine it was like this linear line between get PhD, get tenure, you know, check, yeah. check, check. When of course, you know, the, the line actually weaves all over like this. And the, the only story you see are the points that go like this, but yeah. it's actually behind the scenes like this. And I'm always really upfront about what that looked like and about, you know, really finding your own path. I think that that is one of the reasons I love academia because academia is full of people who found something that they were passionate about, whether it was, you know, I mean, some remote like author from medieval times, right? Which <laughs> I could not imagine spending my whole life studying. Right. Um, but the fact that somebody else can and can convey to me why that's so cool. Um, you know, for me, it's 
it's understanding human behavior and how genes and environment shape it. For you, it's creativity and it's art. And so I have trouble naming any one person because for me, it is the people that inspire me are people who are passionate and who, you know, follow whatever their fill in the blank is. Right. But I think, you know, like I, you bring up a really good, I, first of all, I like that answer, but you also bring up this, I think a really good point about being very upfront with people about, about the path. You know, like that's the one thing I always think about, you know, like a Michael Jordan, you know, the guy got, he got cut from his high school basketball team or junior high. I can't remember which one it was, but it's like, this is the greatest basketball, well, second greatest. I'm going to go with LeBron James, but, but I mean, like there, <laughs> there is ups and downs in it. I tell students all the time. It's like, I went to school right out of high school, but I went there to play baseball, even though I could have gone to play baseball in the minors. If my, I mean, that's what I wanted to do, but, and then I quit school for eight years. So it's like, you know, like I have this crazy path to where I am, but I think it, it makes you who yeah. you are. Like the path, it's, it's, it's not always about the end point or the, I would say that this, this is a weird way to say it, but I, it's to students when they're making a piece, it's not always about the end product, the piece that you make. It's some, it's more, more than likely it's about that path of getting to that piece because that's the thing that's going to allow you to do other things, other pieces or other ideas or whatever. The end piece yeah. is just, kind of a culmination of something and it's cool and it's great and whatever but it's it's that path thing that that I think is way more important to the to the experience of life in general yes and I have to say this has been something that the recognizing that the path is not perfect is something that did not come naturally to me, right? Like I was the overachieving straight A student who had a vision (laughs) that life was- I was the overachieving C student. (laughs) (laughs) I know, don't worry. Now I have a 13 year old who's like, no, school's not really my thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like the professor's child naturally. So, but I did have that, I did have that idea that it was all about the endpoint and just getting there. And that if you did everything just right, you checked everything off and, and life kind of just fell Unf- into place. It the unfolded. just yeah. fell like they should. And, you know, I, for me personally, a lot of my, you know, I was very fortunate in that I had a very blessed and candidly very sheltered childhood. And I didn't realize that the world does not always work out, you know, exactly how you hope it will and that you can work hard and do your best and still suffer setbacks and failures and all of those kind of things. So I learned those lessons a little bit later in life, but I a hundred percent agree that they have made me a better person, you know? And um, so when students often, the other thing I'm sure they do with you too is I know I love college students because they're in this place of exploration and figuring out life and they're excited about new things and you know the world's still their oyster and but one of the things that I find they talk about is like what is my calling like what am I supposed to be doing like what am I going to do with my life as if there is like a set answer to that and you know I didn't go to college and say aha I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to study, you know, genes and environment and human behavior. I mean, I went to college and was like, my dad's a fighter pilot and my mom stays home with us and I'm not going to do either of those things. So here I am. Let's see. Right. And then I took some classes and I got interested and then you have an opportunity and you pull that and some of the threads you're like, Oh, nope, this is not the right path for me. Backtrack and go down another one. And so I really think that, um, I admire people who can embrace those challenges and to, you know, take them on and who keep on ticking and, you know, uh, and who do interesting things. And I try and instill the message with many of our students also who have had challenges in their lifetime, much more so than I ever did at their age, that that's all part of what makes them unique, right? Part of what makes me, quote, unique as a faculty member is the fact that I am trained across genes and, you know, of psychology and genetics and all these different things. And 
you know, part of the reason I'm writing a book right now, I think you knew that. Um, And, uh, and it's about kids. And a lot of it is about my experiences with my child. Uh, And so, you know, and I wouldn't be writing that book if I hadn't lived through a number of those challenges, you know, and come out on the other side and been like, oh, wait, there's different ways to do this. So, um, so yeah, I think that I agree with you that that is all part of the most exciting piece, the journey. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great ending. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, no, I mean, just like I, because I do think it is, it is, ta-da, thank you, bye. Uh, but I, I do think like for me, I mean, I, I, I agree in, I, I, I have a love hate relationship with academia. Um, because I, I do think I teach very much like not like an academic, but I think I get through to students. Like I have students texting me on Friday nights, sending me images of artwork. God and bless you. I don't want any students texting. Oh me no, but I, I, I have a very personal relationship with my students and that's the way that I want it. Like I, I want them to be, have that that comfort that they can talk to me and, and send me stuff because part of what I'm trying to, to show them and, and support them in is most of academia is teachers telling you what to do. And I'm a teacher that asks you why you're doing it. So then you have to respond and, uh, and allowing them to talk and, or, forcing them, not, not, but not in a heavy hand, but like making them talk, I think makes them better people. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I mean, that's why I'm sure you're an amazing professor. I'm not. Is no, I'm because, just kidding. you know, one of my, when I give talks, um, to my students too, and, uh, I always, many times I will start with the book by Simon Sinek, start with why. And he talks about, it's a business book, really. So a lot of folks in academia have not come across it. And he talks about how great companies don't focus on what they do. They focus on why they do it. And so he uses Apple as an example. Um, Apple doesn't say, you know, I make computers. (laughs) They said, we make technology that will revolutionize your life. And that allowed them to go from computers to iPads, to iPhones, to, you know, everything that has changed our life, as opposed to something like, you know, Hewlett Packard, who was like, I make printers. And then, you know, when they try and do something else, it's like, wait, wait, no, you're a printer company, you know? And so his whole thing is, you need to start, if you focus on why, right, that that's where great companies come from. But I think that that really applies to all of us and, and to academics as well, because so often when, you know, when I say like, oh, you know, what do you do, Ron, or to other academic, other researchers, like, oh, what do you, you know, do? We're asking people what they do. Yep. And it's like, oh, why I study alcohol in rats or, you know, <laughs> I, I do genetics research. And, but we don't talk about why the why behind it and you know when you focus on the why you're doing something whether it's teaching students or doing research then i think it it causes you to step back and really question everything you're doing and to to really think more deeply about why you are doing it in that way well that's why i think what chris and mike and i are doing with abstract and Daryl are doing with the abstract athlete. I, I do think we'd focus on the why because mm-hmm. it is Chris and I, you know, when we started this like five years ago, it's, it really was born out of that idea of like, I don't care about what we're doing. It's like, why are we doing it? And how, how, how are we bringing this to other people to not force them to say the what? but the why. Yeah. And and it's true. Like, but I think that there's like, there's a huge difference. It's very subtle, but there's a huge difference in the answer. Huge. Yeah. So, and you know, we didn't talk a ton about this today, but you know, that's part of the reason that I run this research Institute and that I am writing a book and that I'll write these blogs is because, you know, in academia, we reward a lot of the what, yep. you know, writing grants, writing scholarly papers. And, and there's, was a point at least in my career where it was like, okay, I've checked all of my boxes. And so is my goal for the next, however many hopefully decades I have left in my career 
just to see how many more hundreds of scholarly papers I can write for other researchers and put in journals or, you know, how do I ensure that my work is making a difference and it's getting out to people who can use it. And that actually made me rethink a lot of what I do as an academic and think about like, how can I spend my time in ways outside of academia, uh, even things like this, right? To talking to people from um, that aren't just other researchers right in my circle, because I think that's where you can have the biggest impact. Absolutely. No, I, I 100% on the same, the same line as you, because I'm not interested in just talking to academic artists. Like, I'm, I really don't actually want to talk to academic artists ever again. Like, oh, I, come on, we're I, not I, all I, bad, I, the, the academics. No, is, no, so. no, no, it's true, I know. But I, I, I'm interested, you know, like, that's why it's fun for me to talk to you. Like, you know, I just talked to a, an MMA fighter la, um, last week, and I talked to a, uh, a, a student that's an artist but plays baseball at Stanford. You know, I'd like, for me, it's the ability to have these conversations. A, it makes, it makes me a better person because then I, you know, I understand the way that different people operate in the world. But I think it's, it's good for people that listen to the podcast because there's just all these different points about how people are operating, how, again, you know, we, we facilitate things through creativity and exercise, but how these things are beneficial through different studies, through different practices, through different, you know, just whatever. And it's just fascinating to me, uh, you know, and, and it's fun. And at the end of the day, that's what I tell my students. It's like, you're allowed to have fun being creative. Like, you know, like it's, it's almost like it's a bad thing to be in school and actually enjoy something. It's like, no, you can do that. I'll let you. Here you go. So, okay. Last question. What's your favorite band? So that's actually the hardest question you've asked Damn me straight. all morning. Yep. And Casey will be horrified oh, man. if you even asked me that because... Because your answer is going to be oh, horrifying? Ron, you're not going to like me anymore oh, after man. I tell you this. I am really musically illiterate. <sighs> I know. I... It okay. sort of falls in the same category as food for me. <laughs> I really enjoy it, Sorry. but I know nothing it's about okay. it it's right. or how to do it. D- so, and in fact, my musical taste might be stuck somewhere in, <laughs> in the, the 80s. 80s my years. That's okay. That's all right. So I won't make you, know you answer. We're gonna we're gonna here. Hold on, reset gonna, your band. Ron. Oh, of <laughs> course that was a fun. You don't even know the name of it, but I appreciate that answer. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was actually a real blast. And like I said, it was fun to even though we've known each other for years now to kind of like do you know, like research and like really see the impact that you're having um, and what you're doing. And it, you know, it's, it'll be fun now, like to have different conversations at our next dinner parties um, just in a different way. Not that it'll ever change that much. Cause you know, your husband will interrupt us and, and have, you know, whatever. Um, but he's no, thanks too. He's, so. yeah. no, yeah, he's awesome. I love that guy. So, um, but thank you so much, uh, for doing this because this was, it was really fun and, um, and it just, it'll be interesting to see like the stuff you do in the future. Well, thank you so much, Ron. Um, I feel the same way about all the very cool things that you're doing and um, Montana. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, we're going to jump in a car and get out there, uh-huh. you know, one of, the, one of these Me, days. I might be doing that soon, gonna actually. We're going to be stuck with this kind of interaction. This is like all I can get for, you know, a while, meaning yep. the, the Zoom. But, yep. um, but yeah, this is fun. Thanks so much. Really a huge thank you to Danielle for coming on the podcast today. Very cool for me to have that conversation and really to hear about all the amazing things that she's doing. Again, you can check her out at psychology.vcu.edu. Do not forget to listen to our other podcasts on the Abstract Athlete Network, The Abstract Doctors with Dr. G and Dr. C. You can follow us at theabstractdoctors.com or on other social media platforms 
under the abstract doctors and one man's ethos the tony mandridge podcast which you can follow at onemansethos.com or on social media under one man's ethos you can also follow tony on instagram at tony mandridge or on twitter at tony underscore mandridge and you can also check out his amazing photographs at tonymandridge.com Thank you, as always, for listening to The Abstract Athlete Podcast. Stop by our website, theabstractathlete.com, or our social media outlets for future events, pop-up exhibits, podcasts, and other information, including daily creative training journals and subscription boxes. See you next time when we welcome an incredible artist and maker and a U.S. Air Force aircraft armament system specialist veteran Andrew Stork. Thanks as always and do not forget to exercise the body and do not forget to exercise the mind. Stay well out.